Welcome to Opera Plot Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real-life opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a real-life human whose five-year-old's preschool has now closed two times in as many weeks for COVID exposure, about the plot of an opera, and then we ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no clue what opera we're going to talk about. But I do know who the composer is, and so I'm going to try to tell you about him in hopefully one minute or less. Really? I thought we were just going to refer people to our Wagner episode. We sh- we definitely can and should. It's a good episode. It's a real good episode. We do a lot of deep diving into problematic Mr. Wagner and not just you know, contrary to what we've recently been accused of. Uh, we do actually try to take this from a really balanced perspective. You know, it's not a discussion if we're just going to sit and agree with each other and pat ourselves on the back. And I think that Tina and I pretty natural. I mean, I'm a naturally curious person and I would call you the same thing. And so there's plenty of moments where I second guess my in my gut response and I pick it apart a little bit and I want to be exposed to opinions that differ from mine. So hopefully you are too, listener, uh, and would like to expand your worldview a little bit by listening, even if maybe we land on different uh, different responses. Um, but yeah, you should check out our, our Wagner episode. I don't remember which one it is. It's the one called Wagner and Cancel Culture from last summer. Uh, last fall. It's last fall. Uh, I, I'll just link it in our show notes. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I have, I'm using my same bio from, I think, the episode where we did Flying Dutchman. Um, and I've got a ton of notes in that same document as well. But I don't, okay. I don't know what the specifics are that we're talking about today, although I have my suspicions. What are your what suspicions? They might be. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing it's going to be about anti-Semitism. <laughs> I mean, as far as Wagner goes, that's I a almost just said anti-Semitism, and I'm really not sure what that would mean. <laughs> we don't like, like seminary school. We really don't like sperm. <laughs> oh, that kind of semen. Okay. <laughs> I mean, really, either one. <laughs> they're bo- they're both just out. We don't like them. And we just got like the distinctions between our two personalities in that yep. one little exchange. <laughs> As as we are wont to do. Yep. Amanda goes for the sex joke. And Tina goes for the highbrow. <laughs> but and with that, the show um, works, everybody. <laughs> speaking of simultaneous sex jokes and highbrow, you want to tell us about Wagner in one minute? That is an interesting perspective. And yes, I do. Okay. Ready? Set? Go. Wilhelm Richard Wagner, May 22, 1813 to February 13, 1883, was a German composer, theater director, polemicist, and conductor who is chiefly known for his operas. Wagner was actively nationalist in his young middle adulthood and played a minor role in the Dresden Uprising, a left-wing anti-monarchy rebellion. In his essay, The Artwork of the Future, 1849, he described a vision of opera as Gesamtkunstwerk, total work of art, in which the various arts such as music, song, dance, poetry, visual arts, and stagecraft were unified. Wagner had a tumultuous marriage to his wife Minna and was routinely separated from her. During one such period, he knocked up the wife of the conductor directing his opera, Cosima, also the daughter of Franz Liszt. 
list. When Minna later died of a heart attack, Wagner did not attend her funeral, and he and Cosimo were later married. Until his final years, Wagner's life was characterized by political exile, turbulent love affairs, poverty, and repeated flight from his creditors. His controversial writings on music, drama, and politics have attracted extensive comment, notably since the late 20th century, where they expressed anti-Semitic sentiments. His, com his compositions, particularly those of his later period, are notable for their complex textures, rich harmonies and orchestration, and the elaborate use of leitmotif. Adolf Hitler was infamously an admirer of Wagner's music and saw in his operas an embodiment of his own vision of the German nation. Done! Last fucking sentence. Which says, because fuck, <laughs> Fine, because fuck you, us. Tina. <laughs> Uh, so Adolf Hitler was infamously an admirer of Wagner's music and saw in his operas an embodiment of his own vision of the German nation. Because of the associations of Wagner with anti-Semitism and Nazism, the performance of his music in the state of Israel has been a source of controversy. You said anti-Semitism again? Did I actually? You oh, did. my God. <laughs> <sighs> no, that was really good. I loved it. I have only said so many words out loud today, and most of them have been... Are you listening? Please listen to me. <laughs> oh, gosh. What did, I, what did I just ask you to do? <laughs> Having a five-year-old stuck in your home for a week on end and then going back to school for three days and then being back home is just the most sad roller coaster. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I love her so much. I love her so much. She is the coolest kid. She is so smart. I am not of the same breed of human as people who are like successful stay-at-home parents. Mm -hmm. That's just not what my brain is equipped to do. I am very equipped to be a working mom um, and balance a lot of, I mean, I'm not very equipped. It it sucks. Like it fucking sucks to be a modern parent. <laughs> we are We are isolated and we are strapped for cash all of the time. And it's just not the way that the human race was designed. Uh, but as far as if I had to pick one or the other, I would pick being a working parent over being a stay-at-home mom for the sake of everyone's mental health, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, it takes a village and it truly, truly takes a village. Yeah. And it would normally – like we're really lucky that we have family pretty close by. So normally we could call up my parents who are semi-retired and we could call up – my husband's parents who are semi-retired or some of our siblings who work in the service industry and so have, you know, different hours than we do and say, hey, can you hang out with her for a few hours so we can get some work done or whatever? Just get her out of the house. But when your kid is home because they may have been ex or they have been exposed and may or may not have contracted a deadly virus. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of just have to stay at home together, all together. And I know I'm bitching about this a year and a half after thousands of families with actual school-aged children who were not lucky enough to be in daycare during the pandemic had to go through this. And, like, seriously, you guys, it is shocking to me that so many of us are still here. I'm just going to nod to that. Yeah. Uh, I wish I was kidding. Like, it is so flipping hard. It's it's already so hard. And, like, I get it. Like, if you're not a person, if you're childless by choice, like, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm happy for you. And this is not me regretting my decision to have children in the slightest. This is the right path for me. And everybody's life is hard for different reasons. So please, if you're a childless by choice person, do not take this as an opportunity to gloat and be like, well, maybe you shouldn't have. Nah, nah, nah. Shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is merely just one of the aspects that I personally can speak to about why this pandemic has been hard 
And I've been extremely lucky. This is only the third time our school has closed. And all three of the times have been after mask mandates were lifted. Oh, hey. There it is. Weird how that happened. Isn't so it, though? I don't have any numbers in front of me right now. And I know that I'm preaching to the fucking choir or I'm saying things that will fall on dead ears. But here's the thing, guys. If you're not going to get vaccinated, fine. Fucking fine. Okay? I'm not even going to – like, fine. Just fine. <laughs> fine. Regardless of your vaccination status, we know that you can contract it. Vaccination makes it far less likely. It makes it far less likely for you to be severely infirmed or hospitalized or die. And it makes it less likely that you will transmit, but you can still transmit. If you're not vaccinated and you're not wearing a mask, I would like to posit that you are just being a dick for the sake of being a dick. Look at your life. Look at your choices. Please have some consideration for the people in your community who are just trying to do their best to get their kids educated and keep them safe and keep their family members who are immunocompromised safe. Just wear the goddamn mask in public. Just please yep. wear a mask in public. Please. How On much... A different yet happier related note. I'm getting yes, boosted please. today. Hey! That's hey. exciting. I'm getting my booster tomorrow. And Yay, boosted! All, all of these, all of these gray, dark, stormy clouds that I'm bitching about are somewhat alleviated by the fact that, you know, in all likelihood, my lovely daughter will have a negative COVID test and then she gets her first dose of the vaccine on Wednesday, which so is exciting. Yeah. I've, I've seen people being like, I was so relieved I cried and I don't really see myself doing that, but that would be, would not be the first time that I was like, I'm tough. I'm not going to cry about something like that. And then just, like, yeah. you know, melt down. You know, <laughs> I guess so we'll see. As a, as a teacher of, you know, 30-some young piano students, the ones who haven't been able to be vaccinated yet keep coming to lessons saying, I got my first dose of vaccine or I'm getting my first dose of vaccine. Mm -hmm. And it's just like that that ball of tension that you don't realize is there just like releases a little bit every time yeah. somebody you care about says that. And so mm -hmm. like... I'm crying up, crying as their piano teacher. Like I'm tearing up because of this. Mm -hmm. So like, if you cry, no shame because <laughs> yeah, I do it a little bit for everybody who tells me that they got it. Yeah, yeah. But back to Wagner. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about some more really fun stuff that's not going to make me upset at all. <laughs> so, in planning this episode, I knew that I wanted to do Wagner, but I wasn't sure what problematic Wagner topic we wanted to talk about. And of course, anti-Semitism is the low-hanging fruit that we could pick. So I didn't pick that one. <gasps> you didn't. There's oh, no anti-Semitism in this one. There angel. is no like proto-German nationalism happening in this one. Not not really, anyways. It's it's uh it's a problem that I think gets overlooked a lot in Wagner, and it's not necessarily necessarily a, a lot of the Wagner problems you don't see explicitly in his operas but remember he was a music journalist and wrote a lot of essays mm -hmm. and so if you look at the essays and the journals and the things that he wrote along with his operas like at the same time you get a really good idea of where his headspace is mm -hmm. and Wagner did a lot of writing on like man's roles versus women's roles in society <laughs> And how oh, women are so important to society because they play specific roles that men cannot play and stuff like that. And like, mm -hmm. uh, like 
to a certain point, like, that's kind of true, question mark? Like, like somebody born a woman cannot father a child. Like, okay, <laughs> we're getting into the details of that. <laughs> oh, um, but yeah, so of course, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that Amanda and I definitely fundamentally disagree about this. Um, and there are some people who will say that not Wagner... With e not with each other. Not with each no, other. No, no, on this topic. We disagree with Wagner. <laughs> yes. I just want to be crystal clear. This is not about to turn into a cat fight over here, everybody, if no. that's what you're here for. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so Wagner has this idea, or there, there are people who say that, like, Wagner is actually a feminist because he's rooting for women and the roles that they play in society. And I think I disagree with that, like, okay. very largely. And this opera is one where I think we're supposed to really feel like the female character is doing a lot of good here but mm -hmm. i just hate the way that she's treated so i'm really excited that we're going to talk about this because i think that this topic of true feminism um and like what's first wave feminism and what's third wave feminism and and what is this you know like the militant lesbian image of the 70s and yeah uh, housewives are garbage kind of shit from the 70s versus what true feminism is, which is essentially women should have the right to choose how they want to live their lives and they should be able to have those choices weighted evenly against their male counterparts in terms of value. Yeah. Um, and, you know, stop killing women and stuff like that. Um, so this will be really interesting to talk about, particularly because we're taking it out of a time period when gender roles were very much the thing. Oh, yes. This is an opera that, in my opinion, does not at all work in modern society. And if you're wanting to say something with it, you're going to fall very, very short. It is okay. very much a product of its time. And that's why I think we can just nope this opera. Not yeah. because it's just like hit you over the head with the problematic Orientalism, but just because it, it, it doesn't work nothing. in 2021. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'm excited so, to pick this apart. The opera we're talking about is Tannhäuser. Tannhäuser, okay. Tannhäuser. Wagner started writing Tannhäuser in 1843, and it premiered in 1845. So this is fairly early in his career. He's about 34, or he is exactly 34 at the time of its premiere. And this piece was heavily inspired by Meyerbeer, who was a French composer um, and a very early influence on Wagner, though, of course, we should remind our listeners that Meyerbeer was Jewish and Wagner was a very outspoken anti-Semite later in life. Um, so his his views on Meyerbeer changed. So did you Meyer... say Meyerbeer was French? Yeah. Oh, I have that he was German, but I don't know if that's Wikipedia's oops or mine. Editorial fact check. Amanda and Wikipedia were right, and Tina misremembered what she heard in an opera history class nearly a decade ago. Moving on. Hmm. And his first name is Giacomo. So, he, so the thing is, that's so. not his given name. He changed oh. it to sound less Jewish and maybe less German. Hmm, I'm not sure. I, I forget exactly. It's been a while since I, okay. I really looked at Meyerbeer. Either way. I know that, yeah. He, Either way. he wanted to be perceived as a certain way in the world and therefore changed his name. Gotcha. And but, and the, what's notable here is that he was Jewish and Wagner ultimately used his work right now, but then later shat all over his entire culture and religion. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> so Meyerbeer wrote a lot of French grand opera. And this opera follows that style very clearly. It is three hours long, 
we have very dramatic scene changes. The plot spans many months, if not years, question mark. Um, we travel to different countries, even to another realm. There's a ballet. The whole thing relies heavily on a massive chorus that has important passages in literally every scene of the opera. Like you need like an 80 to 100 person chorus to pull this thing off. The scale is massive. The lead singers need to have massive voices. It's expensive to pull off. Well, and I so mean, everything only... you just described is like, I mean, by today's standards, this sounds like a production that would cost $100,000. Oh, easily were, more than that. If you more were to do that. it to the scale that it was intended. Well, and... It's it's for those larger houses that what they do is mm. they hire a design team to build out a show that they're going to keep remounting year after year. So they're, they're like, okay, when we're programming this season, let's pull out our Tannhäuser set again. Yikes. You know, like when, yeah. when you build huge, massive sets, it lasts for a long time. But yeah, of course, yeah. that doesn't help the fact that this opera is very much stuck in its time. And if you're working on a production that was mounted in the 50s and you keep remounting that one, it feels really stale. Yeah. There's some shows that that's fun to do with. There's a local, uh, I guess, regional um, theater here in the Twin Cities called The Guthrie, which is pretty pretty well known it's well known um, nationally yeah yeah um and it, they do a, a the christmas carol a christmas carol mm -hmm. every year and they've been doing that for probably decades now um, oh man the ghost of christmas future <gasps> i just have to say in that production i know what's coming i know but what last time i saw it it scared the it's shit out terrifying of me. oh my god yes. i had these, yes okay so i went to see this uh, what would that have been in like 2014? And I know that every like, I don't know, five to 10 years, they kind of switch it up and like, maybe they'll do some, some sort of conceptual change or they'll get a new director in and he'll do some overhauling. He or she uh, will do some overhauling. Although I think that it's always been men. So like, maybe like, let's change that up to Guthrie. Mm -hmm. um, but, <laughs> but uh, when I saw it, and I feel like you have to be referring to the same uh, staging that I am. The scene change is really abrupt. There's a light change. There's a distinct drop in the sound. And there's this kind of whoosh effect. Yes. The Ghost of Christmas Future is flown in from the fly space from the top quickly. Um, and is humongous. I mean, if He's it was... like a reaper, vulture, mm -hmm. winged, just like horrifying beast. Yep. And that's the thing. Like everybody knows that story. It's I mean, coming. But you honest know to it's God. Coming, but if you want to like frighten people. It was terrifying. I had, <laughs> we, we were really lucky. We got some comps from somebody who was in the chorus. And so we had really good seats. We were in like the, I don't know, fifth row or something. Really, really close to the stage. Um, and I grabbed my husband's arm when this happened and did not realize that I was still like white knuckle clutching his bicep three minutes into this scene. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it was very frightening. <laughs> so it can be done really well. This is a this was a diversion. A, a, no, a... actually it was a related <laughs> diversion because one of the major themes in this is redemption. And of course mm. the Christmas Carol is a story about redemption. Yes, but is. I would much rather see a Christmas Carol than this. Especially okay. if it's the Muppets Christmas Carol, which is the second greatest Christmas movie of all time. No cheeses for us, Mises. Thank yes. you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Tannhäuser is a mashup of two different stories, and much like our issue with Lord of Cries, it seems a little forced. 
it's like when you <laughs> you know how like when you're making something out of play-doh and you're like i'm gonna like make a statue and i'm gonna let it dry out and i've got like this color and i've got this color and you smush them together but you don't like blend the pieces very well and so mm. they stick when they're wet but then when it dries out they just like fall apart <laughs> like a like a weird little poop yes yeah <laughs> sure we'll go with that anyway i that's how i feel about this as well as okay. Lord Prize. <laughs> okay yep so the the character of Tannhäuser, whose given name is actually Heinrich, and everybody calls him Heinrich the entire time, but we're just going to refer to him as Tannhäuser because that's the name of the opera. Okay. Um, so the character of Tannhäuser is a German minnesinger, which is like a bard who specializes in love songs, and they were a thing in the Middle High period in Germany, which is from like the 11th to 14th centuries. Okay. And then the other tale smushed onto this is the tale of the Wartburg Song Contest, which may or may not be a legend. We're mm. not entirely sure, but it was, according to legend, a single contest that it happened once between Minnesingers in 1207 in the city of Wartburg. And in true Wagner fashion, he took both of these existing tales, converted it into something entirely his own, and whether that be through pure creative genius or his inflated ego or like a little touch of both, I will leave that up to you. Okay. So, like I said, this piece is three hours long, so in order to fit in both plot and discussion in our hour-long podcast i'm just going to give us a bird's eye view on the main plot and themes and if we really want to go like if people super want us to go in depth about this it's going to take a three episode series where we do one act each episode and i like if that's truly what you want people send wine because i'm not doing this without drinks. yeah and i'm going to go ahead and say we're not doing that because i can't have wine so fair enough Fair enough. Once Amanda is able to drink again, maybe? <laughs> question mark? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll or see. Or we forget that I ever said this. Okay. So like I said, a major theme in this is redemption, mm -hmm. particularly redemption through love, which is a common thread that we see in a lot of Wagner's operas. Like when we talked about Flying Dutchman, that whole tale was redemption through love. Um, and then the other major overarching theme in this is the sacred versus the profane or the Christian mm. versus the pagan slash barbaric. Mm -hmm. And in the way it's framed, it's a matter of good versus evil and redemption from giving into the life of the profane. Got it. Okay. Act one. I, I'm just going to set the scene with Wagner's own stage direction. He says, and he's so specific because as we know, Wagner wrote not only the music, but his own libretto for this. And he was like very, very clear about what he wanted to see on the stage. So for this, he says, the stage represents the interior of the Venusberg, as in the, the town of the goddess Venus. Mm -hmm. And in the distant background is a bluish lake. In it, one sees the bathing figures, figures of naiads. On its elevated banks are sirens. In the extreme left foreground lies Venus bearing the head of the half-kneeling Tannhäuser in her lap. The whole cave is illuminated by rosy light. A group of dancing nymphs appears, joined gradually by members of loving couples from the cave. A train of bacchants comes from the background in wild dance. The even wilder dance answers in an echo, the chorus of sirens. As in echo, the chorus of sirens. So anyway, there's a huge orgy ballet. <laughs> yeah, fuck. What is that, like 60 people on stage right now? Probably. Jesus. And we're talking about like elaborate scenery. And then how are we achieving rosy lighting in 1845? 
gels over candles? Like, what's happening? Yeah, it would have had to be something like that. You know, all the different fire hazards they used to use to create the same effects <laughs> in the 1800s. Oh, man. We should do an episode on just opera house fires. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> I would like love to. <laughs> if you're a person who's uh, like a theater tech person and it has a has a knowledge, a working knowledge or an interest in historical uh, scenic design and how terribly dangerous it used to be and you would like to be a guest on our show, hit us up. <laughs> oh, heck fun. yes. I'm here for this episode. <laughs> So that's literally setting the scene. Nobody has really, like, none of the named characters have sung anything yet. We just have orgy ballet and chorus. And after the orgy ballet, Tannhäuser, who has probably been here reveling for quite some time, he he realizes that his desires are finally satiated. Oh, so his head is attached to his body. You said that on on her lap is his head, and so I kind of thought that it was a Wagner said that. So yeah, it does make it sound like a severed head. No, no, no. He's kneeling, and he's okay. got his head in Venus's lap. Got it. Okay, yeah. That's- lines up just as well with the orgy scene as the alternative so that's fine that's true right? yeah yeah and Tannhäuser's like well I think I've had enough sex for now <laughs> and he wants to be free and to see spring and to hear church bells again so he asks Venus for leave to go and she's startled and she's like no 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 no, no. let's I'm gonna seduce you again that's how this is gonna go and then he again asks to leave and she gets really mad and curses him for his hope of salvation so let me just point out that Venus is like whatever is against me is salvation so I'm the opposite of that (laughs) so she's openly saying that she's the bad guy yeah okay and Tannhäuser responds with, my salvation lies in Mary, as in the Virgin Mary. And when he says this, the spell is broken. Venusberg disappears along with Venus and all of the other orgiers. And Tannhäuser finds himself in a beautiful valley in May. What the fuck? (laughs) I feel like... Uh, I really hope we come back to that plot line because otherwise that was a massive, massive, like elaborate ruse like leading us into what we think is going to be the story and then it just vanishes yep goodbye vocation of the virgin mary good lord okay (laughs) so this beautiful valley happens to be just outside of his hometown of vartborg and here we get this very on the nose mini summary of the show's theme So we hear a shepherd who's singing an ode to a pagan goddess, but then we hear a hymn being sung by pilgrims who are making their way out of town on their way to Rome, and the shepherd cuts off his tune and just listens to the pilgrims instead. And so the pilgrims make their way through the valley and past Tannhäuser, who falls on his knees praising God. Okay. Yep. And we could just, like, end the opera there. (laughs) Because there it is. Because that's what um, happened. <laughs> <laughs> then we hear the sound of hunting horns, and the party of hunters approaches while Tannhäuser is still on his knees in prayer. And we meet the Landgrave, and he's just really known by his title. And a Landgrave is a title given by the Holy Roman Empire that puts him somewhere between the rank of a duke and a count. Okay. And the other men of the hunting party are Minnesingers from Wartburg, v- Wartburg. Autocorrect. <laughs> they recognize Tannhäuser and they welcome him home and they ask him where the heck he's been recently. And Tannhäuser gives some super vague non answers to their questions. Okay. The Minnesangers tell Tannhäuser to come home and join their ranks once more, which he initially declines, 
But then he changes his mind when a baritone named Wolfram mentions that Elizabeth will be there and would really love to hear Tannhäuser sing as a minnesinger again. And <laughs> so Elizabeth is the Landgrave's niece, and she's been enchanted by Tannhäuser's singing. And when he left town, Elizabeth withdrew from society, has no interest in music, and they're hoping now that Tannhäuser is home, he'll bring Elizabeth back to life. And hearing this, Tannhäuser's like, yes, lead me to her. And that's the end of Act One. Yeesh. Okay. So we're setting up a scenario in which... I'm assuming a very virtuous girl mm -hmm. uh, was just so beside herself when he was removed for the pic from the picture that she just ceased to be an autonomous being. Correct. And his return will restore her sense of self. Yes. Okay. So ding one for feminism. Mm -hmm. I can appreciate that there are folks, I myself am a folk, who likes to be coupled. I prefer to be in a couple. I don't like to live on my own. Um, that being said, I'm a whole person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately responsible for my own emotional well-being. <laughs> yeah. I've never understood the whole, like, you complete me. I'm not a whole person without you. It's like, well, that sucks. I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, it's and very romantic. And I think, I mean, I definitely, like, fell under that like spell I guess in like high school my high school romances were all very like oh we're meant for each other we're two halves of the same whole blah yeah, yeah. heavily it's... influenced by a hallmark culture and purity culture and stuff like that and I had a relationship in high school and college that ended um really dramatically and just absolutely didn't know what to do with myself afterwards because I had built my entire identity around this sense of we are we are two of the same we are as one essentially um and so suddenly I felt like a half a person and I was like that's that's incorrect that should not be how I feel right now I did this wrong I'm gonna do this differently next time so yeah yeah I, I agree that that's like a very like purity culture and like mm. Hallmark Christmas movie. And like, yeah, I've had this conversation with several people. I mean, it, it's just not a very adult way to feel about things, I think. It's yeah. like a very like I haven't lived a lot of life in a it's yeah. a naive way to think it's it. it's forgivably naive in people under a certain mm. age or level of experience like it is don't don't get me wrong like it is a, it is an, an bleh, it is an intoxicating way to think about romance and love and it is something that when you're in the initial throes of the relationship feels true even to the people who are like nope I'm my own person the the initial uh new relationship energy where you're just obsessed and you just want to be around this person constantly and they make you feel so good about who you are. And then over time in a seasoned relationship, it becomes clear that that's not sustainable. Um, it does go away mm -hmm. and you have to have something of substance underneath it, i.e., a strong sense of self and appreciation for your individuality and the individuality of your partner. Mm -hmm. in order for that to be a functional, sustainable, long-term relationship. Yes, I agree. I completely agree. I'm just going to nod and agree. <laughs> yep. Me and Tina are very wise young listeners. Listen to us. <laughs> 
oh boy, like I want to definitely don't that. ignore us because you're you're definitely you're definitely ignoring us, and I I would have ignored me too. <laughs> Yeah, my initial reaction was to like want to disagree with that. And then I was like, but wait, that was actually really smart things you said. You wanted to disagree? I I don't know. When people are like when when people like put me in the position of an expert, which I guess this podcast kind of like posits that I am the expert in opera, which I am absolutely not. Like I get very uncomfortable and then Mm -hmm. I feel super pressured. So nobody listen to me. I'm a fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, every relationship is different. That's just how I feel. That's how I feel. It's what I've observed in my relationship and the relationships around me. But yeah, who knows? Yeah. Well, who knows? And then, of course, in Wagner's writing, like men and women need each other to complete each other. And there, right. there's a role in this that Elizabeth can play that Tannhäuser cannot and vice versa. And I just like, eh. And that narrative is much older than just Christian purity culture too. And like gender role purity culture, because if you, it goes all the way back to, um, Plato's Symposium, there is a – Plato's Symposium is this this writing in which there's just all these different philosophers sitting around drinking and telling stories about various things. They're just telling their their versions of why the world is the way it is. And the one that always was my favorite for a lot of reasons, and I still really like it, although I've changed my perspective on it, is um, The Origins of Love. And – essentially, and I cannot remember the name of the philosopher human who tells this story. It might be Socrates. Um, Socrates. Socrates. Uh, essentially, in the beginning of time, humans were these double creatures where we had either a, a female and a male kind of fused together with four arms and four legs and two heads or you had a female and a female, or you had a male and a male. And the people became too powerful, and the gods were like, this can't happen, and struck them apart and scattered them across the world. And so then the life's work of all these humans is to search the world for their missing half. And I think that's really, really lovely. And I really, at the time, I really liked it because at the time, a huge discussion in the U.S. was around marriage equality. And I really liked just the fact that there was this very ancient perspective on non-homonormative, heteronormative, homonormative. Heteronormative. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus Christ. Uh, I've only had one cup of coffee today, and it's usually all I have, but I feel like I'm I'm needing more. Um, Yeah, non-heteronormative narratives that predate, in a lot of cases, a lot of Christian writings um, as a strong case for like, you know what? You can believe whatever you want, but that doesn't make it true. And here's some evidence saying that people didn't always just hate on this. Um, And I also really liked it at the time because I was in that relationship. And then when that relationship ended, um, even having the the sense that, ooh, I really, you know, put way too many of my own eggs in this basket. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Some weird, weird phrasing for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, From the pregnant lady. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Um, But and then I started my relationship with my now husband. There was still that feeling of oh, this is the right thing. This is the correct pairing. Yeah. This is the one. You know what I mean? Which is very, very, very romanticized and frankly unrealistic. (laughs) 
but yeah. it feels so good. <laughs> it always makes me think like, yeah, I, I was definitely romanticized by that tale as well. And then you start thinking about like, but I don't have time to search the entire world. And what are the chances that I was born at the right age for the one person mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we were born in the vicinity of each other and that we were able to find each other like the world is a huge, it's place, a huge place and it's not even space we have time to contend with and like yeah. how how and so i mean do i think that like meeting my husband was i mean we have one of those whirlwind romances where like we met we were instantly into each other and like I knew that he was going to be somebody special in my life mm -hmm, but same. I was also living with my high school boyfriend of five and a half years <laughs> um, <laughs> and one Thanksgiving John went home from college and was like so there's this girl but she has a boyfriend and his mom was like run far far away and then the next Thanksgiving <laughs> John was like I'm going to propose because we were literally dating for six months before he proposed and then we got married uh, like six months after that so when you know you know yeah and we've been married for eight and a half years and we are a really wonderful couple so like you can look at that with like a very non-nuanced perspective and say well it was love at first sight and it was you found your the other half of your soul that was rendered from you in the beginning or something <laughs> like that but honestly like love is work <laughs> Yeah, it's and a I, I we we both have to work on being complete humans as well because mm -hmm. you're not just a complete human without working on yourself. Yeah. So and and like recognizing when to give each other space to do that. So mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, mm -hmm. all that is to say, I really hate the relationship between Tannhäuser and Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not giving me it's not giving me a lot of optimism at this particular moment. We'll see what happens, I guess. So moving off of that tangent and on to Act Two. <laughs> We are in the Minnesänger Hall at Wartburg Castle, and Elizabeth has been avoiding this place since Tannhäuser left, but now she enters the hall in great joy and sings our old favorite aria, Dich Teure Halle, which our friend Colleen Meyer sings the shit out of. Um, she was our special guest back in episode oh, yeah. nine. nine. Yep. Yeah, yeah. One um, of two. Yes. And I feel so bad because it's such a great aria for the dramatic soprano voice, but the character is just not great. So, <laughs> sorry, Colleen. Anyway, so the, the aria, Dich Teure Halle, she's singing to the hall, saying, like, she was once sad, but she hopes now that they get to hear Tannhäuser's song, grace these halls once more, she'll be happy again. Mm -hmm. And then Tannhäuser enters, kneels at her feet, calls her a princess, and she's confused at first and then asks him where the hell he's been and he avoids answering her. But she just like forgets <laughs> that he's been gone and is just like acting weird and is not answering her questions. Yeah, and she just, like, he avoids him answering her again because he's been off fucking a million women, right? And, and maybe the, also men. And Venus <laughs> and maybe also men and whatever in between, of course. Oh, God, and, is that? I think that's a quote from The Office. <laughs> Creed. Really? Uh, you know, it's talking about basically like there's there were I, there were a lot of orgies. It, would it surprise me if a man got in there somewhere? No, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I never watch The Office. I just get it from people who quote it at me all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I enjoy their enjoyment of it. It is it is a cultural moment. Indeed, it is. And at this point, if you haven't seen it, it may not have the same effect. Likely, no, not. I don't think so. But it's really fun to watch my <laughs> sisters in law across the dinner table, like giggling and quoting The Office at each other. And I'm like, you guys are having a great time. I'm so happy to watch this. <laughs> 
So anyway, Elizabeth welcomes him home with joy, and they sing a duet about being reunited, and then Tannhäuser leaves the hall with Wolfram, and the Landgrave enters the hall, and he is overjoyed to see his niece here once more, because she hasn't been here since Tannhäuser left. And he announces that he's going to hold a singing contest in the hall, and she gets to decide who the winner is. So this okay. is where we get the second story. The first story about Tannhäuser leaving Venus is literally the first That's story. That's the whole story. And okay. then this is like the singing contest legend. And then the rest of it is Wagner fluff in between. Okay. So in the next scene, we get the singing contests. The guests enter the hall in anticipation. There's this massive chorus number. The merry peasants may or may not dance based on who's staging this. But you had a <laughs> ballet orgy, so you may as well use those dancers here. Oh, my God. When you just said that, this is, wow. Oh, man. When I do this, I think to myself, our audience must hate me. But they wouldn't still be listening if they didn't love me hearing you say they had a ballet and hearing they had a ballet. <laughs> oh, like a bad day? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God. I'm never going to unhear that now. It's going to be a really long week of me being at home with a five-year-old man. <laughs> It's already starting. You're already going well, because I'm coming hot on the. We, we were only on our last day of the last week being home on Monday. Ugh. I just rebounded from this. <laughs> like, Here we go again. Back into the depths of my crazy brain. And we have Wagner to kick it all off. Huzzah. <laughs> okay, so for the contest, those who wish to sing their love song enter their name into a goblet, not a fire in this case. And Elizabeth chooses the name from the goblet to decide who will sing next. And whoever she deems the winner gets the prize of whatever they may ask from her. <laughs> Your face um, just now. I'm really hoping there's some fine print attached to that, but okay. Yeah, right. There's. It's funny because there's another Wagner opera about a singing contest, Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, and it's also like a woman. The, the prize is the hand of a woman in marriage, like our very specific woman, like Elizabeth is. <laughs> Which back then so. we know is literally anything you want, you're entitled to at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to try anal? You're good. <laughs> Oh God! Oh well, maybe not in this town. They're they're very good Christians here that we know of. Fair enough. Talk With to me about Talk to me about the Bible Belt and the trending uh, Pornhub searches and the rates of Ashley Madison participation and all of the yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of closeted stuff happening in these very good Christian towns. So. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that reminds me about a few episodes ago when we talked about soaking in like at BYU, <laughs> and I talked to my Mormon best oh, friend. Oh, did and she you? Was, she was like, <laughs> at first, she was like, "What the fuck?" And then she goes, "You know, I'm not really surprised because back in my day, the big issue was dry humping. That was the thing <laughs> <laughs> scolded for." You leave your girlfriend's dorm room with a weird stain on your pants for some reason that's funny uh that also reminds me when we talked about it was back around that time there was an episode where you said that david bowie was your hall pass heck yes and i promised the audience that i would say who my hall pass was it's tonhoiser it didn't <laughs> it is not tonhoiser so um, because I am a bisexual lady, I feel entitled to 
at least having two hall passes. Okay. Um, and so my penis having hall pass is Oscar Isaac. Mm, Poe Dameron. Mm. You know, he was, uh, he, he played Duke Leto in the new Dune movie. And he oh, looks I haven't seen the part. Yet. He looks the part so well, but then you hear his voice and it's like more tenory and I'm like, oh no. Oh, you wanted him to have a deeper voice? Yeah. He's great in, um, what is that Coen Brothers movie? It's really bleak. Really bleak. Becoming Lewin Davis. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know he was in that. He's the guy. That's like the one Coen Brothers film I haven't seen. <laughs> it's it's very interesting. It is one of the more, it's very subdued. And, you know, a lot of their stuff is really like nuanced and kind of chill in in its flavor um it has less of the it's definitely not burn after reading like burn after reading has a, a decent amount of like slapstick comedy mixed in mm -hmm. that kind of gives it a very different flavor inside lewin davis is darker um i like that but it's it's got this just beautiful music and i think it's him singing um it's really Oscar well done Isaac sings yeah, right. I'm pretty sure it's his voice. I'm pretty sure it's him. Um, he's just a beautiful, beautiful man. And I like everything that he's acted in. And there is this recent uh, interaction between him and Jessica Chastain that was viral for a hot second. Because they did a, a film or a project together recently. And the internet was abuzz with rumors of an affair because of this interaction that they had in front of the paparazzi which apparently was that they, they both were like you guys we've been friends since like fucking high school like we have a deeply affectionate relationship for each other this is not an affair but the way <laughs> that he looks at her in this moment that the press caught I was like oh my god <laughs> I want to be Jessica Chastain. Um, so, yeah, Oscar Isaac. And then my other hall pass would be Rachel Weiss, Who is? Um, are you kidding me right I'm now? I'm not kidding you right now. Pop culture okay. is not my strong suit. Fucking. Unless it's super nerdy pop culture. Rachel Weiss is Marion the Librarian from fucking, from The Mummy. I think it's Marion and The Mummy, isn't it? Oh, the, the lady Marianne. from The Mummy. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> there was a meme recently that was like, my sexuality is the entire cast of The Mummy. <laughs> Fuck yes. Yeah, I mean, I can see that too. <laughs> Billy Zane and, and what's-his-face, Brendan Fraser. Um, yeah, no, Rachel Weiss. And if you've ever seen, if, if you are, if you too are a bisexual lady or someone who's like, it's normal to make out with your friends at parties, right? <laughs> Spoiler alert, you're bi. Um, <laughs> is that, that's not a normal thing that people do. There are genuinely women, Tina, this may shock you, who will say, I've never done that, and it has no appeal to me whatsoever. Even okay. in the context of this is fun for the male gaze, if that's something that appeals to you, you may want to consider that you might be bi. <laughs> and if so, welcome, friend. <laughs> it feels great to understand who you are. <laughs> <laughs> um so anyways yeah if you are a person who is like maybe i'm bi um just shut yourself in a room for a few hours and watch disobedience with rachel weiss and rachel mcadams and you'll know at the end of the movie <laughs> 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 you'll know by the end <laughs> we are like ripe on the tangent train today yeah sorry sorry dude i had to tell i felt bad we got called out in our messages from one of our regular listeners that i had not shared my hall pass and so yep, i felt like i really needed to 
rectify that. I, I, I owed the audience a hall, and and really, I owed it to myself. Not to only call. is it a tale of Tannhäuser's redemption, it's a tale of our redemption. <laughs> <laughs> Coming full circle on the things we promised. Uh, okay, so uh, Wolfram in the singing <laughs> contest. So when you swallow, you have to be careful because there's two holes right next to each other. Uh huh. And one of them is for air. You want the esophagus <coughs> one, not the trachea one. We're good. We're fine. Yeah? <coughs> yep, I'm good. Kay. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, singing contest. Wolfram sings first, and he sings a song about courtly love to much applause from the audience. But Tannhäuser puts on his snarky pants and publicly insults him for the lack of passion in his song. And Elizabeth is confused because his behavior sucks and people in the hall are really taken aback by his rudeness and some guy named Beitroff accuses him of blasphemy of all things and Tannhäuser mocks him is he mocking him in the context of just like standing up and being a dick or yeah. is he mocking him as part of his own performance and it's like a smack talk thing like a rap battle moment so the culture of this is like everybody like very civilly sings their song and then a winner is chosen. So mm -hmm. this is like totally against what the Minnesingers do in this contest. Sure. So I don't know if it really is a smack talk thing. I mean, yeah, it's a smack talk thing, but also but that totally have... unexpected. And yeah, rude. in the context that would have been inappropriate to do. Got it. Yes, completely. So he is accused of blasphemy, and Tannhäuser mocks the guy who confuses or who accuses him of blasphemy. And the knights start to draw their swords, and like we are fixing to have a right brawl over these comments. We and are. Then, did you just say we are fixing to have a right brawl? I did. That was I impressive. Did. I even typed that <laughs> sentence in my notes because I was like, "This is exactly what I'm going to say, and I need to make sure I'm going to not stumble over my words because I know myself, and I'm like, I know I want to say things off the cuff, but this is how, it, like, my off the cuff is yep. very predictable. <laughs> yeah. Well, or just yeah. No, I get you. Uh -huh. I get you. So anyway, the Landgrave restores order, and then Tannhäuser gets up to sing his song, and he gets up as if in a trance and sings a super body song about physical love and passion for the lady venus and to the shock of all the good christians present they realize that he's actually been gone in venusberg this entire time and he is a sinner among good people and all of the delicate women with the exception of elizabeth flee the hall at the utter horror of this man and Tannhäuser is condemned to death for his song and for his behavior and for his sins. Whoa. I know. Doesn't that seem extreme? This has elevated quickly. <laughs> exactly. And then Elizabeth leaps out in front of him and shields him with her body. And, you know, despite being like hurt and shocked and horrified by his song, she says that God's will is that a sinner should receive salvation through atonement, not by the people here passing sentence. And so everybody exclaims that Elizabeth is such an angel and Tannhäuser collapses and agrees to seek atonement. And the Landgrave exiles him and commands him to join another of those bands of pilgrims that are leaving town to go to Rome and everyone is sad end of act two hang on hang on hang on hang on <laughs> hang on hang on hang on so you want me to believe that the entire village was running away from this man because he got his dick wet in too many different vaginas and all it took was for this one virtuous woman uh -huh. to exonerate him by basically saying hey you raving mob 
who historically are not easily calmed because you're a mob <laughs> out for blood. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't we be better Christians? And yes. they were like, you're right. You're such an angel. We will listen to you, uterus haver. It's just very unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the fact that she throws herself in front of them, like between them and Tom yeah. and puts herself in physical danger for this guy who is basically like, it's revealed that he left her to go have sex with Venus and many others. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although I will say it is it is a refreshing surprise, surprise, sure. refreshing surprise, uh, that the character being condemned to death for being too slutty is not a chick. I will say, yeah, that's that's a that's a you know, d- deviation from what I would say is the norm. Uh, but I still feel a little bit like, oh, yeah, they just listened to her. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. They went from kill the beast to, okay, yeah, you're right. We should be nice. <laughs> Remember what happened to Belle when she tried to convince the townsfolk that the beast was yeah, kind? <laughs> it didn't go over well. Oh. It typically doesn't. Oh, goodness. Ready to hear how this ends? Like the ending ending? Like oh, act damn. three. Okay. Act three. It's autumn now. And Tannhäuser is gone on his pilgrimage. And we see Elizabeth kneeling and praying. And Wolfram remarks that she's become really sad and withdrawn and is like weakening because she spends all of her time praying and not like paying attention to her worldly needs like eating and shit. Like... Um <laughs> And now, now that Tannhäuser is absent once more, she is just constantly praying for the return of the pilgrims, oh, and honey. she's simultaneous, simultaneously being anxious that he's not properly atoned and been absolved. So just then, we hear a procession of pilgrims returning, and Elizabeth gets really excited, and she stands anxiously, and she's searching among their number for Tannhäuser, but he's not there. And then Wolfram... Offers to escort her back to the castle, but she declines and says something to the to the effect of like, "My path leads towards heaven." Like she knows she's gonna die, and then she walks back up the path alone. Oh lordy, you see why I have a problem with this? Like Act One, whatever. Act Two, eh. Act Three, what the fuck? So then Wolfram, left alone, sees an evening star, and he sings this incredibly and incongruously gorgeous aria to an evening star. Like, when you think of Wagner's music, do you ever think of tender and beautiful? Because I sure as hell don't. But this Mm -hmm. aria is awesome. (laughs) It's like one of the most beautiful baritone pieces. It's O du mein Holde Abendstern. That's nice. Yeah, but also in it, we get a foreshadowing of, of Elizabeth's death again. And then, I mean, just starving herself, like, yeah, yeah, I think we know she's gonna die. She's been starving herself. And she's already demonstrated on two separate occasions that her sense of self worth plummets without the presence of this other human who has proven himself to be not worthy of her, basically. Yeah. Like, come on, lady. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's have a little, let's have a little self-esteem. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Yowza. 
So then a dusty, torn, really weak and travel-weary Tannhäuser stumbles upon the scene and Wolfram challenges him because he's been exiled after all. And Tannhäuser says he's come back to the valley because he's decided he wants to go back to Venusberg after all. And Wolfram is, of course, outraged after everything Elizabeth has been through for this fucking man. And he just wants to go back and commit the sin that started all of his troubles in the first place. Like, what the hell? And, like, she's wasting away pining over you and praying for you and hoping for your salvation. And you're just going to fucking do this. And then Tannhäuser's like, no, 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 no. Listen, let me tell you about my pilgrimage. So we get this story where he talks about this long suffering journey for him to reach Rome, all the while thinking about Elizabeth, nothing but Elizabeth and her gesture to save him. And he finally makes it to the Holy Shrine after a really hard journey. And he's truly there wishing to be absolved along with the thousands of other pilgrims that have arrived there. But when he finally makes it up to see the Pope, he's cursed instead of absolved. So the Pope tells him, just like this wood staff that I hold will never again bear new leaves, you will never be absolved of your sins. And so Tannhäuser is crushed by this and decides... Does he give a reason? Because, like, my, my suspicion is that he's not there in good faith. Like, he wants to be absolved so that he can get with Elizabeth. He doesn't want to be absolved because he truly believes that he needs to be absolved oh you mean the way that my mother uses her catholic faith to say <laughs> <laughs> i go to church to be absolved of all the bad things that i do on a regular so basis continually other people's eyes <laughs> oh yeah yeah i don't truly feel bad for this but i publicly atone right yeah. <laughs> right 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 so i mean if if that's the reason that he's being um if that's the reason that he's being denied his absolution, then I guess I can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, or it could also be that he was cursed by Venus, or I'm not entirely sure. At any rate, oh, Tannhäuser like, okay. claims that he is crushed by this, and so he decides that the best path forward would be to return to Venusburg and his former life of bliss, because that's the only place for him anymore. So then, when his tale is done, he calls out to Venus and pleads for her to take him back, and Wolfram tries to restrain him, but Tannhäuser keeps calling out to her, and we start to see this image of Venusberg and its orgy dancers appearing. Like, it's it's kind of, like, solidifying. I don't know mm -hmm. how that happens in 1845, maybe behind a scrim or something. Gauze, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gauze. Yeah. So then Venus reaches out and says, welcome back, faceless man. And she's like holding her hand out and beckoning him back. And Wolfram then thinks, okay, the one thing that will call Tannhäuser back to this valley and back to our reality is to say Elizabeth. <laughs> so he just shouts Elizabeth's name and Tannhäuser freezes, stuck literally between two worlds. And Wolfram calls out her name again and it works and the images of Venusberg dissolve. And in the background, we hear funeral hymns and Wolfram realizes, oh, it must be Elizabeth's funeral. And sure enough, we see a procession bearing her body like out of town on the pilgrimage path or wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And Wolfram says, Heinrich, because remember, Tannhäuser's real name is Heinrich, you've been saved and that her death was to atone for your sins. No! What? <laughs> Gross! Thank you. Oh, 
and there it is. There it is. The reason I think we can just be done with this opera. So they tell the procession to stop and set her body down, and Heinrich slash Tannhäuser cries over her body and says, Holy Elizabeth, pray for me. And then he dies. And then his soul is redeemed, and we know this because some pilgrims march into town with the Pope's staff, and it's bearing new leaves, and somehow this miracle has taken place. And the final chorus sings, The holy grace of God is to the penitent given who now enters into the joy of heaven, the fucking end. That's the end of this opera. So this guy who is basically he's he's hedonistic and then he stops being a hedonist because he's bored with it and he decides to go back to his old life of being I don't know, less hedonistic and makes a big show of being a dick to other people. Mm-hmm. In a public forum. And this girl who, for whatever reason, just really wants her a bad boy, but is super virtuous, is defending him in spite of the fact that he's actively being a dick and the fact that he omitted a pretty big detail about where he's been for the last several years and it was fucking everyone. Um she defends him he goes off to be absolved whether or not he actually feels like he should be absolved because he's done something wrong is up for debate she meanwhile is back to wasting away because she just can't live without him Mm -hmm. please come back bad boy and let me save you let me fix you he is ready to fucking give up and just go back to getting his DS'd all the time. I don't know why I bothered to censor that. I thought it was funny. <laughs> In a magical, mystical neverland of sexy fun times forever. Which, like... <laughs> Fine, yeah. No, like, not going to argue Go, with that. Get that's it. how you want to live your if life. You're gonna, then... If you're going to remove yourself, like, from the society that you offend and go live your life in a way that serves you and doesn't hurt anybody else exactly, okay... <laughs> Like you came when you came back into the real world, you were being an asshole and hurting people. When you were over here, you were coming all the time. It's a pretty clear there's a pretty clear difference here. <laughs> yes. I would rather he would have just gone back over there, if I'm being honest. Like just just be yourself, okay? Um so <laughs> but he comes back because That I guess that's a big question mark is like, what really is the thing that makes him come back? And you can't just say, oh, it's Elizabeth that makes him come back because there's more to it than that. The fact that she's dead and the fact that her death redeems him and probably the fact that at the very last possible second he chose the light, you know, he chose to not go back to the darkness at the last possible second in spite of having no promise of actually ever being redeemed or getting to be accepted back into polite society. So I'll say that, like, okay, he was taking that risk, so there may be some honor in that. Um, but the fact that her death completely absolves him, she's she's the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. She's she is entire her entire 
character is based on him, revolves around him and his actions and his choices and his mistakes and his movements and his presence or lack thereof. And she knows it. Yes. She, She actively neglects her own body when he's off trying to get absolved, which is really interesting because what's the end goal here? She wants him to come back. She's interested in the fact that he may come back. She watches for the pilgrims. She hopes and hopes and hopes that he comes back. What is she doing by starving herself in the meantime? To be fair, they never actually say she's starving herself, but you can tell she's wasting away and she's spending all of her time she, praying. And yeah, like It's kind of she's, obvious to She's me. wasting away. She's utterly neglecting her worldly body. She is completely consumed with being preoccupied about whether or not he's going to come back, whether or not he's going to be absolved, whether or not he's going to be redeemed, whether or not they will get to be together. And she's not taking care of herself to the point where it's physically obvious that she is unwell. Yeah. That is plenty. Nothing about Elizabeth is about Elizabeth. No. Nothing about Elizabeth is about Elizabeth. Her identity is based on her relationship to Tannhäuser and her relationship to virtue. And that, my friends, is not a three-dimensional character. Definitely not. It also brings up a huge issue that I have with Tannhäuser because we as an audience are really supposed to like him as a character and be rooting for him. And everything revolves around him. And it just makes me think of, like, this this hero worship thing that we mm-hmm. do in media. Like, if you think about, like, the superhero narrative where they are basically committing acts of vig- vigilantism. And if we look mm-hmm. back at, like, the 1950s and 60s era of superheroes, like, they're vigilantes and they're doing things just as bad as the, the bad guys. But there is a very clear delineation between, well, this is the bad guy, so we don't root for him. And this is the good guy. We root for him. Mm-hmm. And anything that he does that is outside of what we consider to be good is just like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to excuse it one way or another, or he can be redeemed of this Mm -hmm. one way or another right Mm -hmm. and it's that old like naive way of talking about batman versus like the new gritty way of talking about batman which is like he has to really struggle with stooping to those levels because there's so much more nuance Mm -hmm. than the way that that used to be and tonhoiser is is like adam west batman (laughs) you know (laughs) we're just supposed to root for him because he's positioned to be the good guy and and that's it there's there's no nuance once again, for the third time in a row this November, I feel bored yeah. by this plot line. Like, very unenthused. I don't care what happens to any of these characters. I really don't. And I'm it's a shit ton of money to put this on to not care about the seriously. characters. And so then, and then that begs the question, like, what is the draw? And I would assume that it's the music. Yeah, it's the music. It's the fact that it's Wagner. I mean, the fact that it's Wagner is is like lighting a candle and drawing moths, you know. People are going to see Wagner for the sake of seeing Wagner. And it's spectacle, right? Yeah, no. So like The Lion King, the opening number of The Lion King, and admittedly, everything else after that kind of dips a little bit in intensity. But it's very, it, it, it is quite an experience to be in the room where a spectacle of that magnitude is happening it really is like that's the magic of theater that is the kind of thing and like what we were talking about at the beginning with the the ghost of christmas future in christmas carol the that moment alone is 
a great compelling reason to go see a live show. But at the same time, is that really what we're going to spend all this money on? Is that like th those few moments of, I hesitate to call it pandering, but like, you know, to a degree, it's like jump scares in horror movies, right? Like it doesn't necessarily take skill or nuance or intelligence to make your audience have a vascular response that like grabs them and pulls them in. I think people are going to maybe like jump down my throat for saying that we just shouldn't perform Tannhäuser because it doesn't, it's not like Wagner is being openly anti-Semitic like he is in Parsifal, for example. Like well, there's not a problem with it and people enjoy it. try to jump down it. your throat about that too. So like let's, yeah. let's be prepared for some people to be mad about this episode and like, well, okay. And, okay. And if you feel really strongly <laughs> about this opera and you disagree with me, like fine, that is, that is your prerogative i'm just saying like it's it's not like openly racist or we're like sexist in a way that it's like we hate women and persecute them for being right. women. so it, it doesn't seem like that problematic of an opera but i feel like yeah it just it lacks nuance and why spend the money <laughs> it's the same conversation that we've been having about <clears throat> well it's it's less it's because it's not openly racist or openly misogynist well it is openly misogynistic, but in a way that is maybe lower on the spectrum of outright damaging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the same the same conversation, Wesley Montgomery, uh, the, the quote you gave during, I think, um, Abduction at Seraglio, um, opera is not a museum. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a living, breathing art form, and it should be treated as such. And it's the same feeling I have when, like, my kid wants to watch a classic Disney movie. Usually I will let her, but I make sure that we're having, okay, we're going to have some conversations about why this is not the way we think. Yeah, like Peter Pan. Let's just talk about that one. Actually, let's well, not. And not even that. I mean, that's, again, that's like outright, like there's some seriously problematic elements in Peter Pan. I'm talking about the more innocuous um misogyny that we're talking about here right where it's mm -hmm. like on its face this is a tragic love story but when you pick it apart you see that there are some really troubling gender roles there are some some troubling double standards that play out in actual society and have literally dangerous repercussions for living women mm-hmm you know, like, in, in it's it's nice to be able to be like, oh, and she died, and it's so sad. In real-life scenarios where women are put in a position where they have to be perfect and virtuous and redeem their husband. I mean, look at the fucking Josh and Anna Duggar story that's happening. Uh, like, that man is sick. That man is sick, and he was raised in a cult that let him be sick. And he is hurting children with his sickness. And her response to it as his wife is to have seven babies with him and cross her fingers that he just goes to prison for long enough to get them all out of the house and then they can sweep it under the rug. Like, there are, there are real life repercussions to these narratives that seem so 
you know, it's just, oh, it's just fantastical. Oh, it's just the way they thought back then. No, it's the way a lot of people still think now. A lot of people still believe that men are innately carnal creatures and they're just going to make these choices and, oh, they're just so weak and women have to protect them and redeem them and absolve them and lay down their lives for the redemption of these men who have gone astray. And it's damaging. It is deeply, deeply damaging. Women are abused and killed in modern Western religious contexts based on these principles. It's not just about being annoyed with, like, not having equal pay. It's about there is actual physical danger posed upon women because of rape culture narratives that are rooted in these stories that we tell yeah. and that we've been telling and that are like, oh, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. But it still pushes this narrative mm-hmm. of women being pure and therefore desirable and saying no is hot and saying no makes me want you more. And it's okay for me to be super slutty and push myself around in that way. And, and I, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll apologize later. Yeah, And that will also then entitle me to the body of this pure, virtuous woman who's saying no. Well, and to that effect, you can't actually present this opera in a way that is condemning Tannhäuser. No, you can't. Because he is he is very well positioned to be the hero of the story. So you can't mm-hmm. even do it as a condemnation. He doesn't I mean, even really have a foil. Like his his foil is himself, I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work, even if the other characters are like, "Kill the beast," but like that, that still that you you still can't like capitalize on that narrative and say these are the people we're rooting for because that's just not the way that the music works in this. Yeah, and Wagner's music and drama are so intertwined that you can't change it. The only way, the only way that I could see you potentially making this about him and his actions and the consequences of his actions more than the redemptive nature of Elizabeth's love, not exclusively because that's still a thing because she makes it a thing, mm-hmm. but you could, the only way you could make it tip the scales in the other direction would be to stop the show when they hear the funeral hymns. Yeah. And then and that's Tom the answer is like, oh, fuck, what have I done or something? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That would be the only way. But unfortunately, the text and I'm assuming the music take a very different turn when suddenly. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because if you stop there. Still, Tannhäuser is redeemed because he realizes that his actions have caused this. Oh, right. The text. So we, yeah. Well, not necessarily, mm. but I'm saying like, if it's like a oh fuck, Elizabeth is dead, then we still we we feel sorry for Tannhäuser in the end yeah. instead. Well, I don't know. I don't know if the if I don't know if feeling sorry for the anti-hero type character is the same thing as them being redeemed. I I think that. You know, we talk about restorative justice and we talk about cancel culture and we talk about all these men doing terrible things, right? Josh Duggar. Mm -hmm. Do I think Josh Duggar is a terrible person? I think Josh Duggar has been acclimated to a culture that 
nurtured a possibly trauma-related mental illness that has caused him to harm many people and be unable to stop himself without some kind of intervention that he has yet to find. Mm -hmm. It does not excuse anything that he's done. It does not make him redeemed or unredeemed. It just means that I, as a third-party observer, am able to look at the whole person and the whole story. And, I mean, I I don't – I've never spoken to the man. <laughs> Not on first-name basis with Josh Duggar. Um, I, I can imagine that he feels pretty fucked up about this all. <laughs> I mean, he's getting a lot of negative attention at a minimum. Yeah. And he's – estranged from a significant portion of his family. I mean, there's got to be a lot of emotional anguish that he himself is going through, not to mention the knowledge, whether he lets himself feel it or not, of the pain that he's caused his children and others. Um, but being able to recognize the pain and regret that he might feel if he's got the self-awareness to feel those things, which Tannhäuser arguable that he does or doesn't because we don't know why he goes off to be redeemed and we know that he almost gives up and we know that the the only thing that makes it like possible that maybe he really truly did kind of have a change of heart um in terms of what his values were at the end is that he has passed up the opportunity to go and be hedonistic and he is choosing instead to go and potentially be exiled and not get what he desires or have to fight really, really hard for it because he was unable to be absolved. So aside from that, that doesn't redeem him exactly because if we're worldly people, I mean, maybe if you're maybe if you staunchly sit in the camp of he has personally atoned. And therefore, what? He'll go to heaven. But uh, I, we live in the earth. We live, we live in the world. And we live in where there are humans. And so in all likelihood, his atonement will have absolutely no effect on the rest of his waking life. Yes. So he will likely suffer for a long time mm -hmm. as a result of all of these events. So I think that you could possibly theoretically chop the tail off of this opera and again i think you would take it from overwhelmingly this story is about elizabeth's virtue redeeming him and tip it just enough onto the other side where you could say okay now it's now it's technically a story about realizing that you done fucked up <laughs> It still doesn't solve the problem of Elizabeth's character no. oh, depending so, entirely on him. No, it super doesn't. All it does it is it makes it less a story about her and more a story about him. And it doesn't change anything about the fact that she is representative of this extremely oppressive and unhealthy standard of femininity that still pervades a lot of modern society and has no identity outside of it. So, yeah, no, I, I don't want to see it. I don't want to direct it. I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I would honestly, like, if you want a good redemption story, just Muppets Christmas Carol, okay? That's all you need. <laughs> yeah, that's a real redemption story. Although he does he does sort of get the, like, the the fear of God put into him. That that's the th- yeah. That's the fucking thing about so many, like redemption stories especially those that are based in monotheism and like christianity in particular is that like the redemption really only comes about when the person realizes that oh you mean i have something to lose in this equation yeah yeah exactly (laughs) exactly like like of course i've been doing harm but wait you mean that that jeopardizes my soul's safety oh oh (laughs) well then (laughs) let me buy you a goose (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh god it's it's tricky you know you make, making good stories is tricky because sometimes the most like satisfying stories are satisfying because they're too simple you know like yeah fair the the kind of stories that are that are gonna make you really be introspective are gonna be deeply unsatisfying yeah, but those are the ones that sit with you. We've talked about this before on the show. Like, I'm not a fan of light. Like, if I'm looking to be yeah. just, like, entertained, like, I'll turn on a YouTube video about a cat. Like, <laughs> but, like, if I, if, I really, <laughs> if, I, if I really want to experience art, I want to be challenged in a certain mm-hmm. way and something that actually makes me think about myself or yeah. empathize with somebody that I never thought that I would empathize with or, or see a different perspective. Like, that's what, I, that's what I want. And I just don't get that from this opera or from, like, a lot of opera, to be honest. What I really want is actually a a Tannhäuser that's actually about Venus and we like cut off after the first act and then the second act is like what Venus does next. (laughs) Who she moves on to. That's what I need. Uh, That's funny. (laughs) Uh, So with that... Thanks, everybody, for listening to our tangents and ramblings and philosophizings about Tom Hoiser. <laughs> if you also have an opinion about what you think a good redemption story is, you can send it to us via email at operabloodhappyhour at gmail.com. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or check out our website at operabloodhappyhour.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there, please rate and review us because it helps other people find the show and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Indeed it does. This is usually where I tell you what we're going to do next week, but we're not going to do next week because it's Thanksgiving. It's true. It's true. We got a lot going on and we hope that everybody is able to take a break and celebrate with families or whatever it is that you or are yeah doing. or if you don't celebrate because i know that you know for a lot of first nations folks especially in the united states um the celebrating of thanksgiving is actually kind of it's more of a day of mourning for a lot mm-hmm. of people um and it's a very it's a very sticky subject and yes. i i have been picking this apart for many years and still Same. have not landed on a comfortable way to gather with my friends and family when the weather gets cold and eat delicious food and be grateful for the things that we have and in a way that is less materialistic than the traditional Christmas celebration um, and also still not be mired in colonization. Uh, However, that's a way of putting it, (laughs) you know, uh, so just, you know, just thank you for the week off (laughs) is what we're saying. Thank you for giving us a break. Uh, It's been three weeks of of you know some some rough topics thanks for sticking with us um we're gonna try and make it a little more cheerful when we get back in december um 
and yeah, have have a have a nice week next week. Take care of yourself. If you live in the northern hemisphere, it's getting real dark real fast, real cold real fast. I gotta bust out my little my little light lamp that sits at my desk and makes me makes my brain think I'm getting real sunshine. <laughs> yep. Uh, Seasonal depression is a thing. Seasonal depression is a thing. And real depression is a thing. Am I am I seasonally depressed or am I seasoned with depression? Oh, oh. A gingerbread sits in a <laughs> gingerbread house. A gingerbread man sits in a gingerbread house. Is he made of house or is the house made of him? <laughs> he screams for he does not know. All right, my lovelies. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Anne Ninon de Lanclos, who was a French author, courtesan, and patron of the arts in the late 1600s. And she very wisely said, Feminine virtue is nothing but a convenient masculine invention. <laughs> <laughs>